If you would open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we are looking at verses 13 through 18 this morning. And the title of the message today is The Coming of the Lord. The Coming of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we begin in verse 13. Let us hear now together the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We come now to a section in this epistle where Paul spends his time teaching on eschatology or the study of last things or the last days. Eschatology is a present reality in one sense, for we are living in the last days now. In fact, the last days began or were inaugurated by the incarnation, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, which is why The writer of Hebrews speaks about in these last days in chapter 1 of his epistle. So we've been living in them all this time. So in that sense, eschatology is realized, it is present, but it also is concerning that which is still yet to come. So beginning here in verse 13 of chapter 4, all the way down through verse 11 of chapter 5, Paul gives attention to the consummation of the age, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, the last day. In our text this morning, in verses 13 through 18, Paul gives special attention to how do Christians respond to the death of loved ones and fellow believers in light of the second coming of Christ. Then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he deals with how as believers in our relationship to the day of the Lord, we, we are not destined for wrath. We are destined for salvation, the completion of our salvation. Now, while Paul must have briefly touched on the second coming of Christ when he was there in Thessalonica, because his time was so short, he was not able to spend much time delving into these matters. And so it seems as after his departure and things that had happened, there were questions and and confusion among the second coming in this church. Uh, Some wonder if Paul and his teaching on it, as brief as it was, conveyed the notion to some of them 
For example, Jesus was about to come in just a matter of days, and that's why they, they quit their jobs. They weren't working anymore. And, and they, just, they, they had misunderstood some things. But they had some real questions, and, and some of it was centered upon there had been believers in the church who had died. What, what happened to them? Were they going to miss out on this resurrection, this second coming? So there were real questions, and there was real grief in this church. And what's interesting and I think fascinating and I think is also an indictment on how often eschatology is dealt with at large is what does Paul do in dealing with the second coming, with these matters? He returns to the gospel. He brings eschatology and shows that it's just as much gospel-centered as justification and adoption. And that sometimes gets lost in how we think about the second coming. So he comes back to the gospel, and he deals with this pastorally. Again, he uses that language in verse 13 of brothers, and we hear a pastor's heart in how he applies the second coming to the church. So in dealing with real issues of grief and sorrow, the apostle brings the people of God back to the glories of the gospel. He shows them how their hope is rooted in the message that Jesus Christ died was buried, was risen, he's risen, and he ascended. So herein the apostle shows us that eschatology is tied to the gospel. So we should not downplay eschatology, nor should we think there are no practical implications for us today. Eschatology is not about knowing details of prophecy for knowledge's sake. It is to have and give us fuel for our sanctification in knowing as we live as exiles and pilgrims in this fallen world, and it's twisted and it's confused and it can be hard for us to know that Jesus Christ is returning and he will come and set and make all things right. So the coming of the Lord should drive us not to despair, but to hope and joy with a holy watchfulness characterizing our days on this earth. Now, as was stated earlier, I am not going to be able to answer all the questions that a person might have on these matters. And and I will preach this passage in a way that I don't want to present what would be sound like a dogmatic view that a person must hold, but you'll hear what my view is. And I think my view is right or I wouldn't be preaching it. And I'll kind of explain that in a sense. But I hope that we can see, as said, all believers, even though there have been differences on the details, it is a core tenet, as expressed in the earliest creeds of the church, that we believe that Jesus Christ will come again. And it will be a physical, visible, literal second coming. Now, what I want us to see from our text this morning is that the coming of the Lord should produce three actions in our lives right now, as we're here on this earth. And the first one is, the coming of the Lord provides hope during grief, there in verse 13. The coming of the Lord provides hope during grief. What he says there in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Grief is a real emotion. For someone close to us to die, 
will produce sorrow and sadness. Paul is not in this text saying that Christians should not weep and sorrow when death comes to those closest to us. For us not to have any grief or or sorrow in such a situation would be in many ways unnatural. So he's not saying that to be a Christian means that you've got to be stoic and granite when someone dies and, and you can't show any emotion. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying, though, is that how a Christian sorrows, weeps, and mourns is different than those who are outside of Christ. So that's what the apostle gets to here when he says, we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. But he says here, I don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant concerning those who die in the Lord. So Paul traces this to a lack of knowledge. And it's interesting and very revealing that often in his epistles, Paul traces issues in the Christian life back to a lack of knowledge. That often the the struggles, the deficiencies, the issues we have can be traced back to a lack of understanding. So that is why doctrine is always practical. And here's a good example. He is saying here there's a reason you're responding this way. It's because you're lacking in doctrine or truth or knowledge. So he says, I want you to know this truth. And he says here, as believers, we do not see a dread hopelessness in death. In fact, we have a hope that transcends death, that goes beyond this life, which is why Paul uses this phrase, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Now, it's true. The pagans, so the Gentiles, the Jews, and Christians have all used the term sleep or asleep as a metaphor for death. For example, sleep is used in the Old Testament for some of the patriarchs and some of the Israelite kings when they died. It said, you know, Asa slept with his fathers and and so forth. So it's always been used to describe death in that sense. But how do we understand it in this context as Paul is using it as a Christian? How is he using the term here, those who are asleep in a Christian context? Well, it gives us a picture of how Christians will be awakened and will be raised. Death is not the end. Sleep shows that term, the temporary nature of death. One day, believers will wake up from death. Matthew Henry gave a really great summary of what does it mean that they are asleep. He said they have fallen asleep in Christ. Death does not annihilate them. It is but a sleep to them. It is their rest and undisturbed rest. They have retired out of this troublesome world to rest from all their labors and sorrows, and they sleep in Jesus. Being still in union with him, they sleep in his arms and are under his special care and protection. Their souls are in his presence, and their dust is under his care and power, so that they are not lost, nor are they losers, but great gainers by death, and their removal out of this world is into a better. 
I found it interesting, not only in Matthew Henry, but John Gill. Some of the older writers would talk about this connection between the sleep of believers and their protection in the arms of Jesus. And I think it's a beautiful picture to think about how Christ doesn't just care for us in this life, but in death and the life to come. Now, some have tried to say that this notion of sleep supports a view that's called soul sleep. And soul sleep is this notion that the dead are in some non-conscious sleep. That's not what the text is teaching or what the entire Bible shows. The Bible presents this of what happens to believers when we depart this earth. We go into what is known as the intermediate state. That is the time between death and the final resurrection at the second coming. It is when those who die in the Lord are brought into the presence of the Lord into a place of blessing, peace, rest. Paul talks about it this way in Philippians 1, 21 through 23. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He says elsewhere, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now that's not the second coming yet. So this is this time, this state between when one dies in the Lord and they're waiting for what our text is dealing with, the second coming, the final resurrection. So that means that death is not some non-conscious sleep in the ground. Death is a gain for believers. And that's why Paul says we don't grieve as those who do not have hope as those who are outside of Christ. In fact, in that context, the ancient Greeks, really for a few that were the exception of their philosophers for the most part, they were in a culture that saw death was just, that was the end. There was no hope, there was no sense of, the, of an afterlife to come. But as those saved by grace in Christ, the hope of the resurrection moderates our grief over believers who die in the Lord. It's not a hardened response to death, but it's a grief that is mixed and marked with consolation and hope. Due to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have assurance that we will see and experience fellowship once again with loved ones and fellow believers who have all died in the Lord. Because believers will one day wake up from death. Right now, their, their bodies are awaiting the resurrection to come. But their souls are in the presence of the Lord. Now, we're not given a lot of detail about the intermediate state and what's all happening and what that looks like. But we do know this. It is a place where we go to be with the Lord as we await the resurrection. We're in his presence. Therefore, that is why death is gain for us. So let us remember the hope and consolation we do have when sorrow comes our way at the passing of a dearly beloved one. For those that die in Christ, their death is not the end. It is only the beginning. 
It has been, it is hard for me to believe, almost 18 years since my grandfather died, that I can still remember vividly being in his hospital room and watching him take his final breaths, watching the heart monitor, knowing how much he had suffered physically his last few years, but also being comforted to know where his hope was, where his rest was. And to know that though the last time that I saw him on this earth was to see that shell of his body laying there, to know that one day it will be raised. And he and all those who have died in the Lord, they die with a hope and a gain. But friend, I want you to see that Paul says here, we don't grieve as those who have no hope because outside of Christ you don't have hope. He says this elsewhere in Ephesians 2.12. Remember, he's talking about us as believers. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world, that's everybody outside of Christ right now, they have no hope. Now death is still kind of scary for us all because it is an unknown We go through it by ourselves. There's nobody to coach us through it. But as believers, while we're a little bit, you know, they have a little fear about the unknown, we have an anchor for the soul. We have a hope in Christ. Outside of Christ, Paul says there's no hope. There is no hope. But in Christ, you can have hope. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to be terrorized by death. But you can have life in the one who overcame death who is the conqueror. Trust in Christ today and you will have hope in this life and in the one that is to come. He delivers and brings his people through the valley in the shadow of death, through the river of death, and brings them into his presence. So that's the first action the coming of the Lord should produce, that he gives us hope during grief. Now I want you to see second now, kind of the, The chief thing here in this text is the coming of the Lord unites the church with her head. Unites the church with her head. Look what Paul says in verse 14 through 17. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, I want you to notice something. Paul expresses a creed. A creed is a statement of belief. We believe. Well, what's he say in verse 14? Here's a creed we have as Christians about death and the resurrection. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So there's a core declaration of the gospel. We believe that Jesus Christ died and was raised for the forgiveness of sins, justification, reconciliation, And life for his people. There's the first part. We believe this in verse 14. But second, we believe, he says, because of this, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the first thing we believe in this creed that he gives us is what we believe about Jesus, his death and resurrection. But second, that means we believe that the death and resurrection of Christ is not only his but it's ours as well. It's for us too. He didn't just die and rise for himself. 
but he died and rose for us, his people. God did not abandon Christ in the grave. Therefore, he will not abandon the children that he has given to Jesus Christ. He won't abandon them in the grave either. So as Christ was raised, so shall we be raised in him. Now Paul states that God will resurrect through Jesus those believers who have fallen asleep, those who have died in the Lord. Why is Paul emphasizing this over and over? Because he wants them to see that those who have died in Christ, not just that may have been in their congregation, but would include also all the Old Testament saints, all those who have gone before, that they will enjoy the blessings of the resurrection too. He does not want this congregation to miss that those who were dear to them who died believing in Christ, that they're going to miss out on the fullness of Christ's resurrection. Those alive when he comes will enjoy it, but those who have died in him will enjoy it as well. Now, how is verse 14 to be interpreted? Well, one interpretation is that it's saying that God will, will bring believers into his presence by the resurrection. That, that's one way that some interpret it. The other interpretation is that it's speaking of the souls of the dead believers coming with Christ as he descends. Now, that would be the view that I would lean towards here in the, the whole context. But we can't miss here that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an event of mag magnificent and magnanimous ramifications. I think it's easy for us to become familiar with these things. We, we become familiar with the birth, we be, the death and resurrection, and we just kind of think, well, it was just normal things. But they... There were aspects of them that were normal, but there's a lot of aspects that weren't normal. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just the core event in a sense of human history, but it serves as a preview of what happens in the end. That's why Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection. He goes before us. He is the first raised in this way in this glorified body and the Bible tells us that we'll be raised like him and made like unto him. And, and that's why Paul, look at verse 14, says God will bring with him. The him there is a reference to Jesus Christ. He's using the language of the mediator. He's the one who God uses to bring those who have fallen asleep. So I would say Paul is arguing here, this picture here uh, of these the saints that have died, the souls of the saints coming with him. And you know what it shows us, brothers and sisters? It shows us that union with Jesus is not just something for this life. We're in union with Christ in life and in death and in the life that is to come. We live, die, and rise with him, in him, and through him. And that's why the resurrection of our Savior is the ground of our eternal hope. Death cannot divide and nullify our covenant bond with him. He owns us in life and in death and for all eternity. Now how is verse 14 going to happen? What's that going to look like? And I think that's what he gets to here in verses 15 through 17. Paul provides us with a, an exposition in a sense of what he's talking about in verse 14. So he says, verse 15, For this we declare to you by word from the Lord. 
I'm always thankful for good Bible studies, commentaries. I use them all the time. But sometimes I kind of can marvel, at least in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, but the pages that can be spent on what I think is minor details. For example, one had about four pages about, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. What is that word from the Lord? And about eight different explanations. That tires me out because I'm like, I don't see how that fits here with preaching this text. So here I'll just throw out my simple version of this. It means either that Paul received some kind of direct revelation from the Lord with this instruction here that he writes in 1 Thessalonians, or it's just a summary of what Jesus taught in the four Gospels about eschatology. So there's my two sentences on what, how I would interpret that part. But the point of it is, this is not Paul's musings. This is the word of the king. So this is authoritative from Christ. That's the key point here. Now, what is it? He says in verse 15 that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Here we are again with this Paul giving focus to the dead saints, those who've died in Christ. Why this emphasis? I think one reason it could be is that there were some ancient Jewish writings that would have been available during the ministry of Paul that some said that those who were living at the time of the Messiah's glorious global kingdom, they were going to be more blessed than those who had died. That somehow those living were going to get more of this kingdom than those who had previously died. And Paul is trying to, to show, no, remember, He's writing to people who had been mourning and had questions over those who in that church had died already. So he's dealing with this pastorally, and there's questions. Are they going to miss out? Or, or is there going to be an aspect of the resurrection and second coming they don't get because they've died? And Paul's saying, no. All of us in Christ will receive the same blessing, the same resurrection. We are all equal in Christ. All believers, dead and alive, will share in the second coming of Christ. And it's the third time here, verse 15, that term, the coming of the Lord. It's the third time in this epistle Paul uses that term coming or in the original parousia. In chapter 2, verse 19, and chapter 3, verse 13. That term, just a reminder, was used for when the emperor or some other high-ranking dignitary or official came to a city. It was a big event. Everything stopped. Well, in a much greater way. When the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes into this earth, it won't be a small matter. The whole globe will come to a standstill. And that is why we do need good preaching of the second coming. Because it is an aspect that we use praying the Spirit will bring terror into the hearts of men and women to see that men may be in awe of earthly kings and earthly leaders who think themselves powerful, but there is one coming who will bring terror into the hearts of earthly kings. This king of kings. So John Stott talking about this term, parousia, says, thus the coming of Jesus, Paul seems to be hinting by the mere adoption of this word, will be a revelation of God and a personal, powerful visitation by Jesus the King. It can hardly be fortuitous that he is writing this to the Thessalonians, among whom, 
at least according to his critics, and this is found in Acts 17, he had defied Claudius Caesar's decrees by announcing that there is another king, one called Jesus. And that still is what we preach and want to see the world turned upside down, that there is a throne that is higher and there's a king who's ruling and he is going to come. Now how do we understand verse 15? This we, we who are alive. There are some who like to say, see, you can't trust the writings of Paul. He thought he was going to be alive for the second coming and he died for it happened. Can't trust what he's saying. Well, did Paul think he would be on the earth at the time of the second coming? Paul does assert in many of his letters the imminent return of Christ. But in those same letters, he talks about how he has a sense that he would die before the coming of the Lord. He'll show us in chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 2, that he didn't know the time of the second advent. He, he didn't claim some inside knowledge that he knew the date that was, he was coming. Like Christ, what Paul is doing is he is encouraging watchfulness when he says we. We need to be prepared as the people of God. Broadly speaking, all believers in the first century all the way to 2020 right now, we all are to live in expectation of Christ's return. Too often as the church, we do not live with this expectation of his return. In fact, I found myself many times in, in working through this passage, this passage this week, seeing how often I, I, I know this and believe this with all my heart, but can go days upon days, weeks upon weeks, and not think about it. Just go about normal life and never give any thought that this could be the day. This could be the day. I think sometimes we, we, we shy away because we know, as Brother Harry already said, so many have used this to make money and manipulate people. It's, it's very disgusting, to be honest, how, how this wonderful truth has been twisted. I think that we also have to maybe acknowledge, if we're honest, that we can be embarrassed by this. It's kind of embarrassing to, to go around and tell people Jesus Christ is coming again in the clouds and glory. That sounds strange. But it doesn't sound any more strange, does it, that they would, the Son of God would be born, take on human flesh, live for people, die for people who are wicked and ungodly and be raised? Well, all of this sounds strange to human ears. But he is coming again. It's part of our faith that we confess and believe in. And we need to live in the light of that coming so that we may pursue holiness and godliness as well as steward our time wisely. So even though we wait for this, this is a future event, we await for the consummation. I don't want you to think, though, that Christ is not present with us now. He is present with us now. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to his people through the means of grace and the word, the, the prayer and the sacraments, as well as the communion we share as his, as his people. Now when he comes, we're going to enjoy his presence fully. That there will be no veil and there will be no limits. But I do want you to know, he's with us right now. I hope you're encouraged by that this morning. After everything that's happened this past week, maybe, that's felt crazy and whatever, I want you to know that Jesus is with his people. He is with us right now as we have gathered here to worship, as he ministers to us through his word. And I want you to know the world right now rejects his kingship and mocks his dominion. Hebrews 2, 7 through 9 teaches, though, that he is going to subject all things under his feet and he will come and manifest his power before this earth. 
So as the people of God, when we deal with the coming of the Lord, let's not hear it in some abstract way that has no real meaning. But I want you to know that it's just as real as our justification and our adoption. Now, we get into the fun stuff. Verse 16 and verse 17. And I stole this little outline from John Stock because I thought it was really good. But he says here in verse 16 and 17, there are four eschatological events happening. And you will be able to remember them because they all start with the letter R. And John Stott, he's went on to be with the Lord. He was an Anglican, but he showed his Baptist colors here, I think, because he used good alliteration here. So, four R's, four events that are happening in verse 16 and verse 17. Return, resurrection, rapture, and reunion. Return, resurrection, rapture, and reunion. That's a nice little outline. So let's break it down. We start with return. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So the return of King Jesus is said that three events are happening. The cry or the shout, the voice of an archangel, That term archangel is only used one other place in the Bible, and that's in Jude. And it said that Michael is the archangel, some some chief angel. And then the sound of the trumpet of God. Now all those images together convey majesty, glory, power, a royal entrance into this world. It's quite a contrast to the first advent, the first coming. Yes, there was out there in the fields the heavenly host and the glory, but apart from that, there was not a lot of grandeur as far as when Jesus was born. It was very humble, lowly. Not this time. This statement says here too, I don't want us to miss this, the Lord himself will descend. Now that's a visible, physical coming. There's nothing here in that section that's metaphorical. That's a literal statement. And I love what John Gill said here about the Lord himself will descend not by proxy or by representatives, nor not by the ministry of angels as at Mount Sinai, nor by the ministers of the word as under the gospel dispensation, nor by his spirit and discovery of his love and grace in which sense he descends in a spiritual manner and visits his people. That's what he's doing right now, but in person. In his human nature, and soul and body, in like manner as he went up to heaven, will he descend from thence so as to be visible, to be seen and heard of all. There's a lot of texts that talk about this. Isaiah 25, 8 and 9, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There's a sense in which that's happened by his death and resurrection and ascension, partly, but in his coming it is fully seen. Matthew 24, 30 and 31, Then will he appear, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And then Acts 1, when it talks about when Jesus was ascended, and the disciples were just gazing and staring, and it says angels appeared. In Acts 1.11, the angels said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's interesting that in verse 16, this cry, this voice of an angel, sound of a trumpet, all those events can be seen in the Old Testament at times when Yahweh appeared to the Israelites. You can read about that. For One example is Exodus 19 and 20. Some of these same things are describing how when the Lord came and met with his people there. Something else, I could have preached a whole message on this little interesting connection, but the sound of the trumpet. You go back to Leviticus 25 on the day of Jubilee when the trumpet was sounded and it marked the day of Jubilee and freedom that came. Well, we know freedom in part now in Christ, but on that day, we all know the fullness of our freedom, the fullness of liberty, the real fullness of the day of Jubilee. So he returns. That's the first event. The second event is resurrection. It says there in verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul states elsewhere that all of humanity is in one of two people, in Adam or in Christ. For those that are in Adam, there will be a resurrection too. It will be a resurrection unto judgment and eternal damnation. Paul, though, is not concentrating on that aspect here. Remember, this, this is pastoral exhortation focusing on those who have died in Christ. They will be raised. They have not been forgotten or they have not been left behind. The Lord will raise them. The saints who are dead in Christ rise to the realm or the sphere of the living, those who have been asleep are awakened. Third event is rapture. He might have been caught off a little bit by that thought. Does you believe in a rapture, preacher? I do, in the biblical one, all right? Now, the term rapture is just the English version of a word that comes from the Latin vulgate, all right? And that term means caught up. The rapture of the church is spoken of in a pastoral fashion here. We're not given all the details of what will happen, but that's not Paul's concern here. He's wanting to point to the blessed hope. And that is, he says in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, those are the dead who have been raised, and the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the living and dead believers are caught up together. The term in the original language of the New Testament used here means to seize suddenly. And it conveys the idea that we will be suddenly lifted upward. In a work that only God can do, the souls of the deceased saints that were coming down with Christ are reunited with these resurrection bodies. And we, the living saints, you know, there's a sense, I don't know, do we, do we die here? Because 1 Corinthians 15 51 through 53 says this immortality, or excuse me, this mortal must put on that which is immortal. 
So there's a sense in which we in this moment are changed. This old body that has been marred by sin is now resurrected. It is now changed. I don't know how it's all going to look or feel. That's what's going to happen. I will say this. From the text here, and studying the passage, there's nothing secretive about this. Some people talk about that there's the secret rapture happens first and then seven years of tribulation and then Jesus comes back. I don't see that here. I, I don't see where loud trumpets, voices of angels, cry commands, text from Matthew 24, four corners of the world, this is not some secret isolated event. This is public. It's global. It'll be witnessed and it'll be heard. That's why Jesus speaks about those who will be here who don't believe in him when he comes again. He said they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. What are we going to be? If we're alive here as believers, what are we going to be saying? Come, Lord Jesus. We're not going to be running. We're going to be running to it. Being caught up to him. We'll be running, but all of this. So I, I think the text is clear. Blast of trumpets, shouts of angels. Jesus coming down in the glory, it is all rather expressive, visible, and audible. So that is why the view that I hold is what's known as the amillennial view, or better says, the realized millennium view. Now right now we're in the millennium in the sense that Jesus is ruling and reigning and building his kingdom and expanding it. And what that all means, Richard Phillips says better than I can, so I'm going to read him, he says, in this respect, we should note that the coming and appearing of Christ in glory is not an event that precedes the final episode of God's plan of history, but is rather an event that brings about the end of history. This rules out, again, an idea of the rapture in which Christ returns only to depart so that more history can be played out, since the return that Paul describes actually ends history. It also rules out the premillennial view of eschatology, the view that there will be a thousand-year period after Christ returns during which God fulfills his purpose for the people of Israel and after which occurs the final crisis of history. Instead, the return of Christ is the final crisis of history and the last day of which Scripture so frequently speaks. The return of Christ does not usher in additional phases or phases of history, but is simultaneously the end of this present age and the consummation of the eternal age that is to come. Some people take these verses in 1 Thessalonians 4 and say this is the first event of many things that are to come. And what Brother Phillips and I'm saying is, no, this is the last thing. This is the last thing. This is the second coming. It's the last day. It's the final resurrection. Revelation 8 through 10 speaks about mighty angels, clouds, and trumpets. Daniel 7, 13, and 14 talks about the kingdom that's given to the Son of Man. Revelation eleven fifteen is the declaration by all the hosts that the kingdom belongs to Christ and is forever. And Philippians 2, 10, 11 says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So that's all creation, all things, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's all happening on this day and when we get to chapter 5. This day, all those things are happening. And what's amazing here 
Verse 17, that statement to meet the Lord. That term meet is used to describe a delegation that left a city, that came out of a city to welcome a dignitary. And then they came with a dignitary back into the city. Only, the other two, only two places in the New Testament that term's used. One is in Acts 28, 15 about some brothers who came to meet Paul. The other place is Matthew 25, 6, the parable of the virgins, which is about these things. You know what it's saying here? It's saying that the church, the elect, the redeemed, the body of Christ meet the head in the skies and then we come, we're changed and resurrected and we come with him to this earth. Clouds here, these are not just clouds we see in the sky. This is the glory of God. This is what was seen there in the Exodus. It's what was there at Mount Sinai. It was there that filled the tabernacle. It's what accompanied Israel during the wilderness wanderings. It's what Peter, James, and John saw and were overwhelmed by on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's what they all saw at the ascension. Remember how he left? He'll come back. He left with the glory of God. He will come with the glory of God. This can't be secret and invisible to most people. It will be seen by all. It will bring joy in the hearts of some and tear in the hearts of others. And the fourth and final event, and so we will always be with the Lord. Reunion. We're with Him for all eternity. How many passages speak about the everlasting fellowship that we'll have with the Savior? Brothers and sisters, let us not miss that the coming of the Lord is about the church being united perfectly and forever with the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And there will be no parting. There will be no ending. So we will always be with the Lord. You notice how many times in these verses Paul uses the word will? It's not a hypothetical here. To quote Spurgeon, I love God's shalls and wills. They come to pass. So we will always be with the Lord. Well, that is why we can see third and lastly the coming of the Lord should encourage the saints. Verse 18, therefore encourage, or some translations put it, comfort one another with these words. Paul's teaching about the coming of the Lord is to bring hope and comfort and encouragement to the church. If the second coming becomes only a means to argue over, then we've missed the point of it. We've missed the whole point. Paul's not trying to predict the future in a sense to impress his audience with his prophetic knowledge. That's the thing you should notice about most of the peddlers about end time stuff is they don't want you to be impressed with Jesus Christ. They want you to be impressed with them. That shows you right there there's something wrong. And Paul has done all this with a pastor's heart, not with some traveling showman mentality. He wants to encourage this church about what's to come. So let's learn from the example of Job's friends. If we need to speak to those who are mourning, let us not speak out of folly. Let us give loving comfort, compassionate words about the resurrection of Christ and mourn with those who are mourning. When it's time for us to speak to them, let us speak truth and love to them. But I also want to add this caution. I wouldn't say do it at that moment when they're crying. 
But we must be aware that, especially in the South, most people have a universalist mindset at funerals. Everybody's going to heaven. Now, I'm not saying a man should stand up there and preach and say, now, so-and-so's in hell right now. That would not be very pastoral. But we don't preach everybody into glory. Because when we do that, then that means that really the gospel and all this it is it's meaningless. Oh, it does mean something. Not everybody's going to heaven. Those in Christ, those who have believed in him, rested in him, trusted in him, they are in heaven with him. So why does this encourage us, though? Well, first of all, we have encouragement and comfort right now. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We remember what Jesus accomplished in his first coming. He has provided full pardon and justification for us. What we know in part now, we'll fully know when he comes. There's no reason for us to dread the coming of Christ. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's not miss what he did in the first advent, the first coming. He was born sinless, lived sinless, died as the sinless substitute for sinners, raised incorruptible, and ascended into glory. And he's coming again to gather his redeemed sheep unto himself. That's why we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But knowing the glory that awaits us, should we not be giving our lives in the present for the glory of Christ? Quote Richard Phillips again, he said, One of the chief problems with so much end times fervor today is that attention is devoted to practically everything except Christ. Eschatologically speculative Christians rack their brains searching the newspapers for signs of the end instead of directing hearts to the Lord who will soon come and take us into his glory. That's what eschatology is supposed to do right now. That we know that we will see and enjoy his glory forever. Let's bring him glory now. Do we enjoy present communion with Christ now through the ordinary means of grace? Do we take that lightly, that Christ meets with us in the present? We don't need to miss this also. How does it encourage us? It gives us strength in the midst of persecution and temptation. This body, all we've got, family, they may be taken from us, but his kingdom endures. We can persevere. And finally, it should be an aid in evangelism that we warn men and women to flee the wrath that is to come. And friends, you might think this morning that everything that I said is crazy and that we're fools for giving ourselves to think about Jesus coming again. But this is the word of the Lord, that he is coming. And when he comes, you're going to stand before him. And what will you plead before him? I'll tell you right now, the only thing he'll accept is perfection. And that's only found in himself. But he doesn't keep that righteousness to himself. He freely clothes sinners like us and beckons us not to tremble and be in fear and hide from his glory, but to come and to bask in it. And our God, believe in him, repent of your sins. Jesus said, I'll turn none away who come to me. C.H. Spurgeon died on January 31st, 1892 in France where he had gone to recuperate 
after he'd been sick. He went there often. When he died there in France, they held a memorial service for him, and then they brought the body back to London to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and they had a memorial service for him there. What both services, they sung this hymn that is based off of our text. It was written by James Montgomery, and I'm just going to quote the last four stanzas from that hymn to close and just consider these words. So when my latest breath shall rend the veil in twain, by death I shall escape from death and life eternal gain. Knowing as I am known, how shall I love that word and off repeat before the throne forever with the Lord. Then, though the soul enjoy communion high and sweet, while worms this body must destroy, both shall in glory meet. That resurrection word, that shout of victory, once more, forever with the Lord. Amen. So let it be. Our Father, we indeed long for the coming of the Lord Jesus. We shall see Jesus. Father, you know our many tolls and snares that we have on this earth. There may be some here today who it, it took just about every ounce of strength and effort to be here this morning. Father, I pray our hearts be refreshed. We're not sojourning alone. Our Lord's with us now. We're a part of His body right now. And we're not the only member of that body, but we have been joined with others. And just as real as it is that on November the 29th, 2020, we're here in this place studying and pondering the coming of the Lord, that there will come a date that has been decreed in eternity past, that life as we know it comes to an end. And the King and all of His glory and beauty will come. And we think about Thomas when he beheld the risen Savior and fell down and said, My Lord and my God, oh, what we will say when we see Christ. And He brings us unto Himself. And He recreates Heaven and earth. To dwell in the new Jerusalem. The lion will lay with the lamb. The child will play with the cobra. There will be no threat of sin. No marring because of the curse. Forever with the Lord. We comfort one another with these words. And I pray that you would open the eyes. And change the heart of one who maybe inwardly thinks that it's a joke, that it's just crazy, or that we'll all get in there some way at the end. No, it is by Christ. I pray they trust in Him, in Him alone. Guard us and keep us, Father. 
that we might finish the race well. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen.